So, so I come down to the lobby at the Hilton in San Diego on the Bayfront there, you know, where we're staying because uh, uh, there wasn't enough room at the Olympic Training Center for everybody that's participating in this thing. And I see, the, you know, President of World Archery or Erdner, and I see Greg Easton, and I see some friends of Greg, and I see a bunch of other people, and they're, they're in the lobby frantically on their phones. And I'm like, what's going on? And, um, well, the, the, the hurricane, Patricia. Hurricane Patricia. Yeah, so they had a chartered plane that they were going to fly down. To that, the World Cup final. To the World Cup final in, in Mexico City. And they couldn't get on the plane. They couldn't take the plane down there because the plane wasn't rated to fly at the height that was required to make it over the, over the storm system and have enough reserve fuel in case it needed to circle for a while ah. because of the size of the storm. So so their their flight got X-nade. It got X-nade, yeah. So they ended up going to L.A. They took that chartered plane instead of taking it to Mexico City. They took it up to L.A. They got another plane, which we're going to dub Ur Force One, <laughs> and, and ended up getting there in time. So it all worked out okay. Hi, I'm George Tekmachov with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, and we're back for another Easton podcast. This is episode number 16. 16, I think, yeah. Which uh, I'm amazed. I'm surprised we've made it this far. I am, because nobody's cracked down on us yet. And, uh, you know, we were talking last week about the uh, World Cup final, and we were talking about the opening of the new Easton Archery Center and some other stuff, and we've got a ton of listener mail, which I've, uh, I've actually done some show prep. I printed this stuff out for We're me. not just winging it this well, time. Well, plus that way, when I press on it, it disappears on our freaking server. It <laughs> will still have it yeah. in front of us. So with all, uh, without a whole lot of ado, um, when we did our predictions, we looked at some brackets, right? Yeah. And and it seems like a couple of the brackets got switched around a little bit. Yeah, the uh, the men's compound bracket, from what World Archery had written was uh, for the World Cup final. It showed uh, Demir Elmogokli, who we will now call Elmo. Braden Galantine nicknamed him Elmo, and we're going to go with that. Elmo. Forever. So if I ever find myself announcing at another World Archery event, he's Elmo. The Elmo, yeah. So Elmo, they had listed at number seven, and Dominique Genet at number six. Wait, is it Elmo or the Elmo? Uh, either way. Okay. Um, so the Elmo was actually number six, uh-huh. and Dominique Genet was number seven. Okay. So that kind of threw off our predictions a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, because I think you would have ranked him higher, or you would have given him more of a shot. Uh, you know, I would have. You did call You did call him out as, as having a good shot here, and earlier in the season, you predicted greatness from this particular guy. I Nobody did. else did. I did. and But, however, I had, some, I had uh, predicted Rio to finish high, and mm-hmm. then Rio and Elmo went up together in the first round. All right. It, it threw off all our predictions, and you know what? I, I'm not going to be held to blame. Okay, you're going to throw World Archery under the bus. Yeah. In fact, you're going to throw Chris under the bus, aren't you? No, not Chris. Because you don't know. Chris didn't write it. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. Well, Chris, whenever he writes an article, puts his byline. But there was no byline on this one. There was no byline. Therefore? Ghost writer. Exactly. Not writer, writer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, then. Wasn't that a bad Nick Cage movie? It was a really bad Nick Cage movie. Yeah. Uh, the man chews up scenery as it is, but this one was just... Let me just say, as a motorcyclist, I was ashamed. Him and Samuel L. Jackson have never said no. No, you're right. Hey, you know what? A paycheck's a paycheck. <laughs> they're, they're in everything they can get in. 
Well, all right. Let's get back to the topic here. We've got. Uh, let's look at the women's compound. Back. Oh yeah, yeah. Back to World Cup final. So in the um, in the quarterfinals, we had Sarah Lopez against Alejandra Uschiano, and Sarah just yeah, I mean, just uh, ripped right through that one. Eight point win. Yeah, one forty eight. Yeah, one forty eight, one forty. And then uh, you had Andrea Marcos versus Stephanie uh, Salinas of Mexico, and that was a draw, which was settled by a ten from Stephanie. Yep, I. I, I saw that. So you've got, <laughs> and then your wife Linda Ochoa Anderson um, defeated America's Crystal Galvin, one forty five to one forty one. So a four point win there. Mm-hmm. And finally, we had uh, Maria Vinogradova defeating her teammate from the Russian Federation, Natalia Avdieva, by uh, seven points. It was a that was a pretty ugly match, and I, I think they're both. What was the weather like? I mean, it was it dead freaking calm. Right, was like that, four mile an hour winds. You think it was part of the problem. Uh, who knows? I I think if you looked at the men's scores, it seemed that everyone had a little nervous energy, and and even Mike Schlosser said he, it was the first time he's ever felt nervous. And I you think know the what? crowd was. It just occurred to me: was, these compound shooters that might be the biggest crowd they've ever seen. Yeah, they said it was a forty five hundred person yeah. crowd. We had a bigger crowd in London, but mm-hmm. only just. You know, I mean, we had fifty something hundred people in London, but uh, this was the biggest since London, according to Ur Erdner, yeah. president of World Archery, and uh, and he'd know. Mm-hmm. And you know, five thousand people in a crowd doesn't sound like much when you're thinking about like a a stadium full of rock concert goers, seventeen thousand. Yeah. Let me tell you something: five thousand people in a crowd can make a lot of noise. It can, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And especially when they're you know they're Mexican crowd and they're really into cheering for their yeah they're loud. Oh my! So there's no doubt in my mind that that forty five hundred strong crowd was was a big deal for these compound shooters who maybe had had thousand. In previous events, you know, twelve hundred, yeah, yeah, tops. I mean, yeah, when Neem, I Neem is twelve hundred or two thousand or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Vegas probably close to the same. Yeah, you know, when I played college hoops, we our our bigger games. The school I went to, we we had a crowd of about five thousand, maybe a little more. Yeah. It was a, a rival school we were playing. Um, but you know, I I also played in games where there was eighteen thousand people yeah. in the stands. And but imagine, imagine, you know, you're talking about basketball, of course, which yeah. is a team sport, right? But imagine have if you had to perform free throws one after another with that crowd yelling at you i i say in when it comes to nervous energy there's no sport more difficult than archery because you're you're asked to remain still you gotta hold still and when you have a lot of nervous energy in your body that's hard in basketball in other sport you know ball sports and things of that nature the it's, pentathlon stuff you used to do. yeah it's uh or you know, decathlon excuse me yeah nervous energy who cares you know you're gonna go out and run or move and all that it's not yeah. it's not hurting you really yeah i mean yeah shooting a free throw might make a difference but even then there's motion in archery a, a lack of motion makes, <laughs> makes that i, I really totally difficult. agree you know having having done some other stuff at a reasonably high level i can i can absolutely agree with what you're saying there's mm-hmm. no doubt about it okay so um on to the semifinals there and sarah lopez versus stephanie salinas and again sarah prevailing but only by one point it was 144 143 close match yeah um Stephanie hung around and then brought it back. I think she actually had a one-point lead at one point. Yeah. And uh, I I thought maybe that would be where Sarah would falter. She rarely has to shoot in a close match, you know. And uh, But she, she held it together and 
picked up the win. Linda uh, found herself in the bronze medal match after losing to Maria Vinogradova. Any observations there? It was a 145-142. Yeah, Vinogradova remembered how to shoot after the first round where she was horrendous. And uh, she's a strong shooter. She she does that from time to time. She has highs and lows, but she's young. She's like 19. By the way, that's a 10-point difference between her quarterfinal round and yeah. her semifinal round. So that's enormous. In those yeah. conditions, which were good conditions, that's really you know crazy. Yeah, she shot well. I think watching it closely, um, I think for Linda, the home crowd kind of worked against her, to be honest. There's, there's too much energy at that sure. point. A lot of pressure. Yeah, a lot of times you notice that um, – sports teams play better when they're on the road versus at home and it's because they go and it's it's all business on the road there's nothing else going on there's no family no friends you know it's just you go and you you put your work in and and that's it and uh maybe maybe that was the case here i don't know she said she was really nervous for the first match and not as much for the second but regardless uh vinegardova came out on top okay and then for the bronze medal final linda prevailed by uh three points yep and she defeated her teammate, Stephanie Salinas, uh, 143 to 140. And again, in front of a big, enthusiastic crowd. Yeah, they were really loud for both of them. So that was it was a cool match. Glad that Linda medaled. That was a, a goal of hers. And um, she had far and away her best season ever. Is it because she's married to me? Uh, <laughs> or in spite of. I who don't knows? Know. Yeah, in spite of. <laughs> I mean, I mean, is it because I'm setting up her bows now? I don't know. Yeah, okay. Know. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Oh, boy. <laughs> and then for the gold medal final, I have to imagine the Mexican crowd got behind Sarah Lopez uh, solidly. Big win. Huge win. Uh, we're talking eight points here. Yep. Um, Vina Gradova kind of went back the other direction. Yeah, 137 on par to what she had done back in the quarterfinal. So not consistent. But Sarah uh, with a 145 to win the gold medal yeah she deserved it she was the best shooter all year and long. second in a row now for yeah. her second world cup final in a row i should say all right so um i guess the stunning stuff has got to uh, be in this category men's compound yeah i mean you look at the think about this there was one score above 145 in the quarterfinals yeah it's insane that it, won martin damsbo you know? went out with a 146 yeah, so there was, there was two above 148 <clears throat> but you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, what's up with that? It was, it, it's got a, uh, I don't know, I can't say, and I'm not, I'm not. Gonna you haven't act had a like, chance to talk to any of these guys, I take it. Yeah, and I'm not going to act like, oh, if if others were there, it would have been different. You well, know? no, I mean, yeah, I, but, that's you can't put yourself in that situation ever. Okay, so by the time we get to the quarterfinals, we've lost um, the top. We four lose seeds. the top four seeds. Uh, Mike Schlusser of Netherlands is out versus Mario Cardoso of of Mexico by one point after Mike shoots an eight. Yeah, that was hard. That was hard. Yeah, all he needed to win would have been a 10. A nine would have forced a shoot off. And yeah, I know all he needed. I get it. Right. But, <laughs> but I mean, that's Mike yeah, Schuster we're talking he about. Could have won. Mr. Perfect. He could have know? won with one arrow. And and there's a great photo, a Dean Alberga photo, that I think tells you everything. It's where he, Mike's pulled the visor of his cap down over his face. I've never seen him look so dejected, and I can't blame him. You think about this. Um, at at uh, Antalya, the, where he was silver, he didn't miss ten points the whole freaking yeah, tournament. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, in head to heads. But he wasn't in front of forty five hundred people no. screaming for the other guy. Yeah, and, and the other was, guy was Mario Cardoso of Mexico, who you know eighth seed comes from nowhere. The and, wild card, yeah, yeah, the wild card, and beats number one, beats Mister Perfect, beats Mike Schlusser. Yeah, I, it's 
it'll be interesting. I, I think I think this core group of guys will uh, take a lot from this, you know, from this crowd and the what they felt, and it'll be. Oh, it's a learning it'll, experience. Yeah, it'll be a strong group next year. Oh, no doubt. I have no doubt about that. But also, I think we're seeing a resurgence. First of all, let's face it. Who would have expected to see an Asian compound shooter in the finals at this event at that level? That's uh, Abshak Virma, mm-hmm. right? What we're seeing here is a result of the huge effort that the Indian team has been making. They, by the way, came up here to uh, to the Eastern Archery Center and trained intensively. Yeah, a couple um, times, I, I got a nice uh, I got a nice text from Greg Easton. Um, by the way, which, you know, had a picture of himself with Virma and, and sort of, you know, uh, Greg never brags, but he was very proud of the fact that the Indian team had made big progress here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I can't blame him for that. That's that's a tremendous achievement. But remember, Virma's the guy that I saw shoot close to 50 consecutive 10s at yeah. the Asian Cup uh, in Bangkok last year. So, you know, he's clearly on a roll. Well, anyway, he defeated uh, Martin Damsbo. And if I... You know, if I'd been looking at that as a bracketed item, I, I would have picked Beerman. I think I did, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I said, don't be surprised if Beerman takes yeah, this Yeah, and it, it, uh, that one was the least surprising of all the matches yeah, to me. Agreed. 148, well, 146. And, and now, Damsbo went out with a score that would have won. Would have won every any match. Any one of these other matches. Well, any one of them. Let's point out Sarah Lopez would have won every match, too. Yes, indeed. Very good She would point. have tied with Abhishek. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, this is one case where you want to shoot like a girl, as they say. Yeah. And if it's a Korean girl or if it's Sarah Lopez, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, was, you know, um, again, Rio Wild going out to Demir Emigakli, uh, Elmo. <laughs> and Mr. Emigakli with a 145 to Rio's 143. Any insight on that one? Um, that one, it, it looked like Rio never could get comfortable at all. Traction. Yeah. It, Didn't have it. Was, it. Yeah, it was... Uh, it, that's a one in a million match for him. You'll you'll never ever see that again. I I seriously doubt. So, so a little bit of good fortune maybe for Demir. yeah. And and I think there was. Uh, I mean, for me, I thought it was going to be Rio against Dominique Genet, mm-hmm. and I think that would have. Who knows? A different opponent. Rio Rio just beat Genet. Yeah, you're basing that on the on the brackets that we'd been given. Yeah, the brackets we had been given. So otherwise, yeah. so yeah, yeah it's, that was a weird match. Um, you know, at the same time, Elmo and, and great job, Braden Galantine, with that nickname. Elmo is not a bad shooter at all, dude. No, dude, you called it won, back in back you know? in Copenhagen when we were talking about the Copenhagen World Cup fifteen podcasts ago. Yeah, you kept talking about this guy, uh, Demira Magakli, and you know, I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, but you know, uh, I've never seen a Turkish shooter really long term yeah. do this in compound. Well, you were right, and he's the only guy who was never in a individual medal match this year on this list. Well, you, you called just, it, though. He you just saw was it. a top eight machine, you know, top eight every time. Now, moving on to the semifinals, uh, now you've got another uh, a great couple of matches here. you got Mario Cardoso, the dream match, potentially, for the uh, Mexican crowd, and he's up against Abhishek Virma. Virma blew him away. Eight-point win. Yeah, 150. Crushed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Demira Magakli just squeaks by Dominic Genet by one. At this point, I thought And Verma, they're, they're ranked sixth and seventh. I mean, that's a close, yeah. you know. At this point, when Verma shot a 150, I thought, okay, he he's he's in his spot. You know, he's in his zone. Yeah. He's going to win. Yeah. So he cleaned it, beat Mario Cardozo. Now we're into the bronze medal final, Mario Cardozo versus Dominic Genet, and it's a 10-point blowout in favor of Dominic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mario must have just lost his uh, focus or, you know, the crowd got to him, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
maybe similar situation to that with Linda, you know, when she was uh, maybe too much energy. From yeah, in the semis, who know, knows? Potentially. Mm-hmm. We're guessing here. I'm, I'm not going to tell you we know. We're guessing. So the gold final, although I think our guesses are based on some experience here. Gold final, uh, we've got Abhishek Virma and Demir Emigakli, and if I had to put money on who was going to win that one, I would have said Virma. I would have. I would have as well. So the fact that there's um, a two-point win there for Demir, for, for Elmo, is yeah. pretty remarkable. I mean, the 150 coming in for Verma, that, that's what would have you know made yeah. me put my bet there. But, but. but this is pressure right here. This is gold yeah. medal pressure. Abhishek Verma, seven points down on his previous pass. And Demir pretty much, you know, uh, comes up to the occasion. He he was in the same range, just one point down from his previous pass. Yeah, he. we kept commenting he was like a low X guy the whole time. Um, I don't remember which match it was, but Braden and I were texting throughout the whole thing, and, and we were saying, dude needs to add a click, add a click, you know, and he was uh, on at his, one point. On his site. Yeah, yeah. He, had, he had one arrow above the top half of the X. You know the top half of the cross, the the whole match, and it, it was like he probably could have saved a point or two, you know, but whatever he won. You see it all the time, though. You're like you're screaming mentally at somebody, move your sight, and you never you know? know. You know, maybe that person's got a little issue and they're holding low, so they've built that in. You know, they're already holding bottom of the yellow. Maybe so. And and he's a trigger shooter, so that's sometimes even more likely with those guys yeah it's possible so who knows you know they don't want to break a one perfectly in the middle and have it out the top they want it to be at the top of the 10 so you see that guys build it in what's your plan for next year steve are you gonna stay on this uh, path of trying to get to the world cup final yeah there's the the nice thing next year is there's only three world cups and they're within like a month and a half of each other so should be a lot more manageable. Yeah, I I got really tired and burnt out and bored this season, so I can hammer out basically April, May, and June, and and that's my outdoor season. Just a uh, context here, Steve was the American alternate for this World Cup final. Yeah. Okay, moving on to the. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just drop that. I'm sorry if I'm bringing up a sore <laughs> subject. I don't mean to. Well, I do, but not not at your expense. I would have liked to be there. That you know. Sure, uh, we would have liked all. to have you there. Yep. Because goodness knows you would have gotten just as much work done. So, <laughs> just <laughs> or more, totally kidding. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, in some ways. All right, on to the recurve women now. Okay, so we've got uh, at the at the quarterfinal stage now. We've got Choi Musun versus Alejandra Valencia. And remember, we go to set play when we go to uh, when we go to recurves here. Mackenzie Brown and Anna Maria Rendon. I'd ran into Mackenzie. Um, I'd, I'd gone down to the Olympic Training Center. A couple days before Mackenzie departed, I was supposed to shoot a match with her, and I just ran out of time. I wasn't able to, but uh, what a great kid! Just, just an awesome lady, and great attitude going, mm-hmm. getting ready for this thing. You could just see she had the fire in her eyes. She was just steely-eyed about the whole thing, and, and um, then we've got uh, Mackenzie versus Anna Maria Rendon, of course, which is absolutely no pushover, and Anna Maria ranked higher. Kaori Kawanaka of Japan was up against uh, Deepika Kumari of India. And Li Chen Ying of uh, Chinese Taipei was up against the great Kibo Bay. And that match was the first big shocker because Li Chen Ying beat Kibo Bay 6-2. Yeah, that was a, that was a surprise. Yeah, I'm going to say that Kibo Bay was, uh, you know, uh, just not herself at this particular... I mean, it's travel. It's the end of the longest season ever. And you can't blame the woman. I mean, you know, she won Copenhagen. And I have to imagine, 
that after that experience, it's hard to keep your your motivation up. Yeah, and then and then they didn't go to uh, she didn't go to Poland or Medellin, so she kind of lost that competitive kind of a long spell sharpness. there. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other side of this, I will say, um, uh, Li Chen Yang from Chinese Taipei, mm-hmm. she got in, and this this kept getting talked about by the announcers, and they kept mentioning. Yeah, she got in at the last event. She beat her teammate in the bronze medal match mm-hmm. to qualify. Um, her teammate was beating her 4-0. And she came I, back from a 4-0 deficit. She came back. That's pretty impressive. I'm doing air quotes right here. I see. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there was some coaching involved saying, hey, we really want uh, someone in the in the World Cup final. I see your point. Yeah. Maybe so. You could be right. I don't know. No, you, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna dispute that. It looked like because I've seen it before. <laughs> I've seen that kind of thing happen before, and uh, you know, I mean, that's you could argue that's a legitimate thing for a coach to do. Yeah. Look at the big picture, right? Look at the big picture. So we'll just leave it at that. That's an interesting observation, and we'll yep. just leave it at that. But she she got in and and beat Kibo Bay, so that's. There. That yeah. says a lot, too. Yeah, it does. I mean, well, certainly Miss Lee absolutely belongs in this final. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about that. Yeah. She won the uh, – when we had nationals at Yankton, she won that thing quite handily. Mm-hmm. And I've seen her perform at a super level uh, in other events. So yeah. uh, the fact that the Chinese Taipei women are going to have to go to the uh, final – or to, excuse me, the uh, continental qualifying tournament uh, next week in uh, Bangkok to make their Olympic slots is an anomaly. I imagine they'll have no issue making it there. No, no, no. I, I imagine you're right, but it's but still an anomaly. They still got to go do it. And, yeah, that is – they're typically a very strong women's team. Mm-hmm. And I'm headed out there um, in a couple days to uh, to help with that event. But um, Deepika Kumari and Kaori Kawanaka, I've told you that you, you predicted Deepika yeah. uh, would do great things at this event. And I kind of said, mm, she's kind of up and down. I'm not sure. And I thought that Kaori would have a better uh, – a better shot. She was ranked third, Kaori Kawanaka, and Deepika was ranked sixth. But it ends up that uh, they were pretty close, and Deepika won 6-4 over the Olympic bronze medal winner from the London Games in the in the uh, team round, uh, Kaori Kawanaka, who trains uh, at uh, Kindai University with uh, Takahara Furukawa, who we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, Anna Maria Rendon and Mackenzie Brown. So it's Mackenzie's first World Cup final. It's a, it's her first international year, right? She's just come off Basically. winning. Yeah, she's just come off winning her first medal in a World Cup uh, mm-hmm. at the previous event in Poland. Yeah, and she crushes Anna Maria Rendon, who's a super athlete, just a great shooter. Crushes her six two. Yeah. So uh, things I, you know, I, I wasn't surprised there. McKenzie's no, not even a little bit. Out. Absolutely, she's figuring it out. And then we've got uh, Choi Musun over Alejandra Valencia of Mexico, 7-3. So Alejandra at least, uh, you know, held held strong there for a mm-hmm. while. But uh, Yeah, she got some points. Yeah. And uh, so then we find ourselves in the semifinal. We've got Choi Musun against McKenzie. Look at that, 6-4. Yeah, it was a close match. Yeah, close match. And McKenzie, you know, held strong. Um, did not prevail over Choi Musun, but uh, the 19-year-old Miss Choi, Mackenzie can't be much older than that if she is even that. I think old. she's twenty or twenty-one. Yeah. 20, um, who knows? You know, they're in the same bracket there, age-wise. Most of these people, most of these kids, are pretty young. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. You know, um, I think if I'm not mistaken, um, the youngest at this event was Choi and Colin Klimchak. Yep. 
and because uh, they're both 19. Mm-hmm. But, you know, everybody else is in their early 20s, except, I mean, you know, they're talking about Crystal, who's 31. Yeah. As if she's like, you know, the elder states. But yeah, it's a little different on the compound side. You yeah, know, the, know. the recurvers seem to, they come in and it like you look at a shooter like, uh, oh, yeah, he's kind of on the older side. Mid 30s. Yeah. Yeah. For a recurver. Yeah, sure. Still, still got, still got it. Yeah. And, and, that's not to say I'm not here saying age like and treachery shooters. will crush youthful enthusiasm. Yeah, so. and if you're if you're 35, I'm not calling you old. Either. No, by no means. But. Well, that was I was joking that you know I mean they're calling they're they're kind of referring to Crystal as being one of the elder shooters, yeah. and she's 31 years old for Pete's sake. Yeah. So I mean, give me a break. All right, Deepika Kumari, um, also in her early 20s, she beats Li Chenying of uh, Chinese Taipei in the semifinals. So that sets up a semifinal match. Excuse me, a bronze medal match. Between uh, Li Chen Ying and Mackenzie Brown, and you know, quite frankly, Li Chen Ying, with a lot of experience in this kind of thing, just handed it to. I mean, just you know, just took yeah. it, just she, just grabbed it. She made the most of her opportunity she for did. sure. But but kudos to Mackenzie Brown for making it to the finals and making it in the finals at the yep. World Cup final. So uh, great experience, and I guarantee you're going to see that young woman's name on podiums for years to come. Um, she's working hard down at the Olympic Training Center with that new facility. Uh, sky's the limit. Yeah, I think a little bit of uh, the taste of success will, will give her reason to work even harder. Um, you know, next year, the Olympic year, the uh, U.S. right now only has one spot. I think she's leading the trials after yes. leg one. And yeah. We'll, we'll see what becomes of that if they if they pick up more spots or, or what There's happens. There's no assurance but, that the American women are going to pick up more spots. That's the problem. I mean, yeah. they're going to have to, if they earn any slots, they're they're going to have to earn them. I'll put it this way. They might have been better off not earning the slot they earned in Copenhagen because then they would have had at least a couple shots. Now they've only got one, and that's the final qualifying tournament, which will take place in Turkey next year. Yeah, so that's going to be... Uh, and let's hope that takes place in Turkey next year under the circumstances. Right. Choi Misun versus Deepika Kumari. Um, Choi was ranked number one. Deepika ranked number six. The outcome, not shocking. Choi Misun winning 6-2. Yeah, um... She she pretty much dominated. Yeah, I, I Deepika, you know, shot great. I Deepika is quoted as saying she was moving her sight, nothing was happening. She's moving her sight, nothing was happening. Deepika's hmm. got a history of of that kind of stuff going on. So I think um, that was her what fourth or fifth silver at World Cup final. That's right. Yeah, uh, that, which as is, a matter of fact, I I, I uh, neglected to mention that uh, the Indian press was kind. Yeah, for, for once. Yeah, <laughs> you know they weren't mean to her. No. which was nice to see for a change. Okay, on to the men's recurve. Um, the brackets were for the quarterfinals. Kim Woo-jin versus Luis Alvarez, El Abuelo, who acquitted himself nicely, 6-4, as it turns out, in favor of Kim Woo-jin. Yeah, it was a fight. It was a fight. He put up a great one. Uh, Jean-Charles Valadon, the shocker. Jean-Charles takes out Xing Yu of China, 7-1. Colin Klimchek beats Brady Ellison, 6-2. Brady's not feeling well. Brady has uh, Brady has been ill for a few weeks now, and um, there's some speculation out there as to what the cause is. Some people saying he picked up a bug in Brazil. My understanding is it's something perhaps a little more um, than that, and that you know he's going to have to pay some attention to it now that he's home hmm. and and is able to you know he's sleeping a lot. He's uh, he's just not feeling well, and he wasn't his usual chipper self when I ran into him down in San Diego. So hopefully, uh, quick. Quick uh, healing to Brady, and uh, a little time off might not be a bad idea. No. 
for uh, for Colin, this was a big opportunity to to learn some stuff. You know, I mean, it's his first big international, you know, at this level, and uh, and he did very well, uh, unfortunately, up against his teammate. But uh, you know, still. Now you've got uh, Miguel uh, Garcia Alvarino, Miguel Alvarino, the winner of the European Championship earlier this year in uh, Azerbaijan. The European European Games. European Games, excuse me, that's right. And uh, he was up against Lee Seng-Yun, who, you know, I'm sure number two ranked Lee did not expect to lose the number seven ranked Mr. Alvarino, but he did. And it was a 6-4 outcome. Yep, I, I I wouldn't have ever bet on that one. No, but you know, I mean, you know, I I uh, quite frankly didn't figure Mr. Alvarino into any of my calculations. No, but that being said, we probably overlooked him because he has won a major event. Yeah, that you know? that European Games was a major event. So you now you've got John Charles Valadant against Kim Woo Jin. Now, if I, I you know John Charles is a good friend of ours and. Uh, we have the greatest of respect for him. World champion in field archery, European champion, indoor world record holder at one point. I mean, the guy is really a good shooter, mm-hmm. but he's not Kim Woo Jin. He, he's not a two-time no. world champion. He's he's great. He beat Kim Woo Jin on a shoot-off by a couple millimeters, both of them shooting tens. Yeah, and and JC knew he basically needed an X to win. Yeah, because Kim it. shot the ten. He. That match, he both of them shot like they had a compound in their hands. It yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah, just just remarkable. Yeah. Huh? I, I've only maybe seen one match that compared to that, and that was last year in Medellin. I think it was the Indian team against the Korean team, and that one was equally as exciting. But uh, JC and, and Kim Woo Jin, that was probably you, you. If you had been commentating immediately following that, you had said that was the gold medal match. Truthfully. Yes. Yes. But then it didn't play out that way. Yeah. No, and we'll talk about that. But uh, so now you got a bronze medal final. You got Kim Woo Jin against poor Colin Klemchek. <laughs> you know, Colin's a tough-minded kid, right? He's he's actually a very serious kid. He's he's uh, not that he doesn't have a sense of humor. He certainly does. But he's a focused individual, right? Mm-hmm. He's also one of the nicest people I've met. Yeah. You know, in in uh, quite a while at that level, but. Uh, you know, he, what do you think's going through his mind going up against Kim Woo Jin? He's got nothing to lose, really. Yeah. Um, so but, you know, he's but, number six, and he's up against number one. He knows who Kim Woo Jin is by by all means. This has got to be a great experience for him to shoot against that guy at a final at an event this size. And he, you know, he did well. He he picked up three set points. He uh, he did, and that's the bronze matches are always some of the toughest. Um, I've been in far too many bronze medal finals myself, and it's you're shooting for something or nothing you know and And it's actually arguably got more pressure than a gold medal match because you know you're going to win a medal one way or the other in a gold match yeah gold medal match you're shooting to win you know and and you're not you're not going home with nothing and keep in mind a bronze medal final at the world cup final that that pays about ten thousand dollars if that doesn't matter to you then congrats you've got you know, you're you're Ojin Hyuk yeah. getting Hyundai money. <laughs> yeah, you're not worried about about money. That's cool. <laughs> I want ten thousand dollars. There's no doubt about that. You know, yeah. and I'm sure Colin thinks the same way. Yeah. Anyway, so Kim Woo Jin uh, takes it to Colin Klimchek, and uh, in the end, it was seven three in favor of Mr. Kim. Gold medal final. I'm going to say was uh, you know a little bit of a surprise. JC uh, was ranked fourth going into this thing, of course, and Miguel 
was ranked seventh. And in the end, hey, solid shooting from Miguel. Yeah, he was. Uh, he wins six two. He he rolled through. He sure know? did. He sure did. And you know, I mean, this is what he was preparing for uh, because he didn't do much after the European Games. You know, he he basically was off the radar all season. So uh, another guy who never made a final the whole year in the World Cup scene, and then uh, I don't believe, and then you know got in just by virtue of consistent performances. Yeah, you get a bunch of top eights, you're going to make it in. Yeah. So now we are well and truly into indoor season, my friend. Except for the fact that we've got one more big outdoor event, which is Bangkok uh, this upcoming week. Um, oh, and congratulations to our friend and and catalog cover man. Uh, Takahara Furukawa of Japan, who just won the Japanese Nationals. Very nice. In uh, in uh, Tsumagoi, down there in the uh, middle of Japan. So that was a pretty solid performance. And if I hadn't been in San Diego, I would have been at that event. So Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if Catalog started shipping yet or... He's got 10 of them. Okay. I made sure he got some for his family. <laughs> do, we, do we have it online yet? I think it's going to be if it isn't already. Yeah. It's... Uh, EastonArchery.com is where it'll be as a PDF download yeah. if you don't have it. I posted some of the new stuff on my uh, Twitter and yeah. Facebooks yeah. and Instagrams and, you know, that sort of thing. So the, yeah. uh, the quivers and stabilizers are on there. We had a lot of people commenting and asking me questions. I hope I got to them all. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of questions about some of the stabilizer stuff. Um, one of them is a question that we probably should address right now, and that is, do the contour stabilizers come with weights? And the answer is no, they do not come with weights. Mm-mm. What they do come with is a conversion stud that lets you use either 5 16 24 or quarter 20 legacy weights because, um, well, the truth is most people who are going to get into something like that already have a, a bunch of weights, and yeah. we don't want to make you have to go buy new ones. Yeah, you don't have to add to the cost. So. Yeah. And if you're – we should probably talk. If you're if you're not using a whole lot of weight on those, that's a great opportunity to use those quarter 20 weights. The They're a little bit longer – Smaller diameter, which the Easton vary weights. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, and also Doinker weights are quarter twenty two. So if you have a, a collection of those, those yep. will fit directly. Yeah, if you're using, so you can go either way: five sixteenths, twenty fourth, or quarter twenty weights, like our Easton vary mm-hmm. weights or the Doinker pancake weights. Yeah, with four or five ounces, that gives you a, a nice streamlined, uh, small diameter weight stack out on the end of the bar too. Yeah. Okay. We've got a bunch of listener questions. You going to tackle one? I just want to say thanks to everyone who uh, resubmitted their emails when we had our little email server issue. Yeah, we got a we got a stack of those. So we're gonna we're gonna give you uh, I'm gonna give you first dibs on that one because it's six point type and I can't read the darn thing from here. Okay, this one comes from Chris. He says, "Great podcast. I'm addicted to catching up, and I'm excuse me, I'm addicted and catching up on all the episodes so far. Enjoying the interviews with archery champions of the past, the who's who, the names I haven't learned in the early days." Yada yada. I was wondering, how did Easton develop the arrow selection charts? These have become the Bible for most archers to work out their shaft selection, but they must have taken some time to develop. Uh, I've been shooting for 16 years and remember buying my first bow and the salesperson referring to the chart for my first Easton Jazz arrow. Um, let's see here. Is there any other things you should consider when selecting arrows? He's talking about we have uh, draw length, weight, and... That yeah. So point weight. So we've got variables in the chart, and here are some of the variables that you need to consider. If you're using a Dacron string, if you're using wood and fiberglass limbs, and if you're using um, 
a longer length bow than would be canonical for your draw length. All three of those things slow things down and would drive you toward a weaker shaft selection. So that's number one. You got to consider those variables because the, the chart is actually built around what we consider to be pretty much normal competitive rigs. That is a Dyneema string that would be carbon limbs, things of that nature. Now on the compound side, um, you're really going off cam design mm -hmm. as your biggest variable. Yeah. And it's, I, I always stress to people, these are, these are ballpark and you may go up one box, you may go down one box, but if you address your equipment variables, you should be able to determine that. Yeah. If you read the variables, the problem is, you know, it's, it's, there's two factors that I run into frequently and that I see people run into, um, and the customer service people deal with. The number one issue is people guessing at their bow weight. Yeah. People guessing at their bow weight is the number one problem because they see a marked limb and they, they figure that that must be the weight of the bow and they don't either calculate what it would be or figure out what it would be at their actual draw length. Not to mention, if it's recurve limbs and you're plugging them into a certain riser, those limbs are marked for a certain length and geometry. Yeah. You go into a, a riser with less brace height, you're, yeah. you're adding pounds. It goes back to the whole ILF yeah. myth. There is no such thing as an ILF standard. There is no international limb fixture standard. There's the Hoyt dovetail that a bunch of people have copied, but that was set up for a specific geometry. And once you start messing with that, for example, a win and win riser does not have the same geometry as a Hoyt riser. The geometry on your standard win and win riser is about equivalent to a Hoyt riser cranked down all the way. And win and win limbs are marked differently at a different draw length than Hoyt limbs. And Samic limbs are different. And so by the time you're done trying to figure all this stuff out, unless you actually pull out an actual calibrated scale and measure the actual weight at the click, mm -hmm. you have no idea really what the weight is. And you could be off an entire box. And then, you know, you're, you're, you know, complaining about the chart. I've had, I've had people in the same conversation say the chart is always too weak. The chart is always too stiff. Well, I'm sorry. It doesn't work both ways. <laughs> so, you know, measure. Yep. And what, you know, people might not know a good way to measure with a recurve, their actual draw weight. Is there a method you use? For me personally, um, I get my hands on a, uh, on a, on an electronic scale, an electronic bow scale. If I don't have access to a draw board, Mm -hmm. And I will measure it that way, actually pulling the arrow through the clicker. Um, other methods using a fish scale or particularly using a Cardoza type scale, the, the friction type scale that a lot of shooters may have seen in equipment inspection, mm -hmm. will read five pounds low frequently. Yeah. Because we, of friction. We have a lot of problems with those. Yes. Yes, we do. So. So. Okay. A, uh, this one comes from Malcolm, and Malcolm says, Hi, George and Big Cat. First, thanks for a wonderful and informative archery podcast. I've been greatly enjoying it and the topics that you guys cover. Thank you. I do have a question for you. Over here in Europe, he's a listener in the UK, the outdoor season is pretty much over, and we're into the indoor season, but I'm struggling to find the motivation for shooting spots every session indoors, and with the continual battle of not missing the 10 ring, He's a compound archer. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you guys have any tips on how you stay motivated until the sun is out long enough in the evening to go shooting down the range after work. Thanks, and keep up the great work from Malcolm. So, you know, this is not just a compound problem, Malcolm. This is a this is an archer problem, and it has to do with, you know, self-motivation, has to do with finding ways to stay motivated. Now, what's motivation first? 
Motivation is the drive or desire that comes from inside, not an external factor, to go do something that you wouldn't be normally doing. And, you know, I, I, I want to lose 20 pounds. I'm motivated to go stand up and, and walk five kilometers after, after dinner every day. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, um, somebody's diagnosed with some illness and they're motivated to stop smoking or something, right? Right. Well, with archery, uh, most of us have some amount of drive, but that drive waxes and wanes depending on what you're getting ready for, you know, what your, what your lifestyle is like, whether you really have the fire in the belly to get out there and, and, and compete. And so if you're looking for motivation uh, and you aren't developing it from inside, then you need to look for outside motivation. And a great way to do that is to gather with other people and shoot with them and have some friendly wagers. That's that's one method. That's one I employ. The other one is um, get some new equipment, <laughs> you know, get new equipment and mess with new stuff. That helps a lot, too. I would never occur to me to say that. Yeah. It, what do you have in mind there? Um you know, sometimes you think about think about um, if you put a new exhaust on your motorcycle, you want to go out and ride your motorcycle. You know, maybe you want to ride it anyways, but maybe this adds to it. Like, hey, I really want to ride it. Now. Okay, I, I I guess I see where you're going. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I see where. In my case, if I buy a new helmet, right? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go ride 200 miles just to see how the helmet feels. Right. Or, you know, but um, okay, I I can see where you're coming. From, I, that's actually fairly reasonable. And it, therefore, it doesn't have to, you're not telling them to go buy new arrows, go buy a new bow. You're saying maybe go buy a new release or, or even just a, a small, you know, just a small accessory. Yeah, or just make a, make a change in, in your stabilizer setup. Try something different that you haven't before and, and go see how that works out. You know, go commit to shooting. I got to say, I, I, would, games. I would not, that would not have occurred to me in a thousand years, but I think I can see your point. Sometimes, yeah, when I need to get shooting and I really don't want to. Stuff, stuff like that helps, you know. I guess my personal philosophy is once I have it working, I don't mess with it. That's how I am as well. But like right now, I I, I don't really want to go practice. It's uh-huh. it's not exciting to practice. And you you talk about these people who just shot World Cup final. You know that was and it probably super exciting. You rarely will have that much fun. And standing on the World Cup stage, shooting with a camera in your face, there's a lot of energy going through you and it is fun it is addicting and it makes it harder to come home and and want to go stand in the range by oh yourself i, I agree that there's a letdown after yeah. an event the question is how do you stay motivated yeah so you gotta you gotta do something you gotta reset a goal yeah so so here's where i'm going with this malcolm i'd say set a goal i'd say set a goal that's that's reachable that that is something that involves practice you know and i'm not saying quantity of arrows but quality maybe yeah. Set a goal of shooting, you know, uh, whatever your capability is. If it's a 300 that you're seeking, set a goal of shooting a 300 in practice and do it starting like you would in a tournament. Mm-hmm. Shoot your two ends for practice and then just start scoring. Yeah. Yep. Don't ever. My old home club was, uh, we had one guy who was pretty notorious for if he shot, if he shot, you know, all tens in the first two practice ends quote unquote he'd count them then he'd go all right third end <laughs> you yeah. know he's yeah. just gonna start from there but that, that was my thing is and here to be honest where we're at here in utah we don't have the leagues like we did back home don't have the population of of dedicated target shooters in this area to generate the critical mass required to keep a league going we we do but we're all spread out yeah 
I mean, the Salt Lake Valley is 90 miles from yeah, end to end. Yeah. yeah. So we're, I mean, I'm an hour and a half from some of the guys I would like to shoot and train with. I just, you just can't do it. So yeah. it's uh yeah, get with your buddies if you can and, and shoot league nights and do side bets, something, you know, even it's small shoot for a pint. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lee Trevino was, was famous for saying if you, I think I might've said this, if you want to add pressure, um, real pressure is, is betting $50 when you've got 10 in your pocket. Uh. So stuff like that, you know, will help replicate some of the, the tournaments you might be getting ready to shoot in, but something like, yeah, like George said, shooting for a pint, you know, throwing five bucks down, that kind of thing will, will break the routine of, of just sticking arrows in the target. All right. You got one there. Got one here. Seems to be Australian. Okay. Oh, no, he's an Aussie in the UK. Oh, I'm not sure what you call that. Stranded. Yes. Um, he he doesn't really have much to say. He just wanted to say we did great and uh, saw the pictures of the quivers on Facebook. We had the belts in the wrong order. Um, yes, I think this is you. <laughs> I don't remember. All right. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Glenn Ryan, thanks a bunch for writing in. Okay. So we've got, uh, we've got a message here from David. Um, and David is saying, I was wondering how you could explain exactly how X10 arrows benefit the archer. I have read that they are barreled and one end is stiffer than the other. How does this impact how the arrow leaves the bow and its flight? Currently, the outdoor season is over. and I'm already thinking about what's on the cards for next year, which is not a bad idea. Uh, and then there's a second part to his question, but we'll, we'll let's go after the first one. Exactly how X10 arrows benefit the archer. Well, there's several things that we need to parse here. First, let's consider mass weight on the arrow. Um, back in the early 90s, the trend was to go lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. People were trying to get the lightest possible arrow. The Beeman Company, which at that time was separate from Easton, it was its own you know entity out there competing with Easton. Um, Beeman had created uh, arrows that were about as light as you can imagine, and um, they were equipped with 50-grain points. So they were going for just absolute speed, trying to um, you know get as much speed as they could. Well, they're a disaster in windy conditions. Super light arrows shot at competitive weight bows just don't work well because they drift like crazy. So a mass, more mass in the arrow was something that we recognized early on would be a good idea. At that time, we had been developing a thing called the Arrow Flight Simulator, which was a full-up mathematical simulator for arrow flight, which actually, among other things, uh, simulated the vibration of the arrow in flight. And we realized pretty quickly through actual measurements that a heavier arrow actually worked better coming out of recurve bows. And... Since recurve bows actually haven't changed much from the standpoint of performance, there was a particular frequency that the recurve strings would be inside of an envelope of. And we realized that we could tune the arrow mass to work better at the separation point from the string by having certain considerations for design. I'll leave it at that. That's one reason why I developed a heavier arrow in 1992 that was used in the Barcelona games by certain shooters. And that was sort of the prototype of the X-10. They were ACE arrows that were made heavier than normal. And they performed pretty well, so we knew that we were on the right track. During the interim 
between 92 and the 96 games, I developed the X-10 Arrow down in San Diego at Easton Composites. And, you know, the, the biggest drawback of that of that heavy X, uh, heavy ACE was it was bigger in diameter. So we went for the smallest possible diameter we could get. And we did that by using a core tube that we'd been developing for the National Aerospace Plane Project for NASA. We used the highest modulus carbon you could get your hands on, which today is still the highest, you know, stiffness carbon, specific stiffness that, that is practical for this kind of thing. And we also designed a even more flexible rear half on the arrow shaft. I chose to go with uh, something even more flexible than the rear on the X10 on Meaning the ACE it was rather. Tapered harder. Well, harder. it's 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 set to an offset from the center stiffness that's a greater differential. So it's a it's a uh, what we call a tailspine. That tailspine is weaker than the corresponding ACE. Okay. So it actually flexes more, which is why the X10s have a stiffer spine value for the equivalent shaft. Okay? So an X10 410 is actually equivalent to an ACE 430. Mm, okay. All right? This causes the back of the arrow to act like a shock absorber. Now, why would you need a shock absorber? Well, the same reason you need a shock absorber on your car, so that if you hit irregularities in the road, uh, it helps to dampen those out the irregularities of your release from shot to shot similarly can be dampened out. Also, by lightening up the rear of the arrow, you get better clearance as mm -hmm. it passes the sight window. And so that's the chief advantage of the construction of the X-10 is it gives you better clearance. It works better for the frequency of the bowstring and it tracks better downrange because of the mass. Those are the those are the basic answers, but there's a lot of complication in having arrived at the design. It worked out, clearly it worked out the way we wanted it to, though. Now, I, he also wants to know, David also wants to know, when you're using arrow points, should you subtract the arrow point length inside the arrow from the overall length when considering spine? The points I used would cause the first inch and a quarter of the arrow shaft to become stiff and inflexible. Thoughts? Well, the, the charts are set up around the, um, the steel points. And tungsten points will actually make the arrow react slightly weaker because there's less shank inside the arrow. Right. So uh, when you're reading the chart, one of the variables is tungsten versus steel, and the steel point is what the chart is set up around. Um, so that uh, hopefully that answers that. Yeah, uh, and, and to, to expand further on that, I tested a year ago with stainless points and tungsten points and out of a compound i'm sure it's different out of a recurve but out of a compound no noticeable difference in impact i totally agree with you on a compound you wouldn't notice a difference on a recurve you do yeah you would on some setups particularly lighter weight setups particularly weaker spines um, when you get into stiffer spines it's less of a difference but it is a difference for a recurve right. and the reason of course is the amount of paradox you're experiencing when you're shooting a compound is a fraction of what you're seeing when yeah you, you know and it's a different direction and it's yeah. vertical in the compound versus horizontal on right. a recurve so okay you got another question there we've got one more from uh chris wright and he's one of our 11 listeners in japan i bet we have more than that now. we now have 41 Ooh. um so chris uh he he had, he mentioned some stuff about George's strong connections to Japan. Then he asked some questions um, 
It seems that Yamaha used to be a popular bow maker globally, and some of the older members of my club here still use them. Uh, I was curious about the history of Yamaha equipment and equipment from Japan in general. Okay, uh, let's talk about Yamaha for a minute. Uh, Yamaha started out as a division of uh, the music company, not the not the motor company. The music company and the motor company separated from each other years ago. So Yamaha, but they're you know they're they're a karetsu, they're a conglomerate. So they're under same ownership. They were not under the same ownership per se, but they were under the same, shall we say, family connection of companies. So Yamaha Music, which was famous for violins, electric violins, electric pianos, things like that. Yamaha Music was separated from Yamaha Motor Company and um, was still the vendor for Yamaha Motor Company's dashboards. They they, They do car interiors for companies like Toyota. Hmm. Also, you know, I mean, I've got a I've got a car that has a, a Yamaha engine, but it's a Toyota vehicle. Interesting. Yeah, it's a Yamaha motor, but it's a Toyota car. It, it's badged Toyota. Oh yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, of course. And um, that's you know that's actually fairly common. There's some uh, there's some Toyotas that have uh, Subaru motors. You know, uh, the most most of the higher performance, like the Celicas and the uh, Supras, those actually use Yamaha motors. So. Jeff Howard and I both have um, you know high performance versions of the Celica, and those are Yamaha engines and those things. So yeah, well the point is that Yamaha Music was making dashboards for cars, and um, this is a little complicated, but basically the CEO of Yamaha Music, his wife was a lover of archery, <laughs> and so they decided to make bows, and they started making bows in the 1960s. Their first bows were made with bamboo cores, and they almost put that division out of business because within a year, those those bows, those limbs started breaking because bamboo is, unless you treat it in a very specific way and you laminate it in a very specific way, it will fail over time. So um, Yamaha had a huge problem uh, in the 1960s with the, uh, the limbs not staying together. Uh, the risers at that time, interestingly enough, were copies of Hoyt risers. And um, as they progressed, Yamaha began to, as many things in Japan, set the standard for fit and finish. Not necessarily performance, but fit and finish were impeccable. I mean, the paint jobs were gorgeous. The the artistry of the risers, uh, especially starting with the Eola riser series. But before that, you know, the Alpha EX in the hands of uh, some of the top Korean shooters was was quite dominant. And um, not so much among Western shooters and not so much among men, but certainly among certain women with draw lengths that were um, proper for that. Now, the flaws of the Yamaha design were many. One of them was that, you know, they had essentially a, um, just a, a wedge to hold the limb in the riser. So if you had a string failure, and this is, remember, this is the days of Kevlar. Yeah. If the string broke, and it would break within 3,000 shots, your limbs would go 50 meters downrange good times oh yeah no joke so i mean it was pretty common almost every end at a major championship you'd have somebody break a string and you know with the with the resulting delay to get them back up and running and make up their arrows etc yeah and and maybe go down and get their their limbs if they shot a yamaha no joke (laughs) in fact the reason for the hoyt dovetail is to retain the limb in case of string failure that's the reason for the hoyt dovetail so we've come a long way. Yes, yes, we have. <laughs> yes, yes, we have. My good friend Don Rabska has a uh, has a, a framed piece of art in his house, 
which is made from a coil of all the strings that broke at one particular tournament. So it's it's about a foot and a half in diameter, and it's it's behind a um, piece of glass, and it's just a coil of these broken bowstrings. You know, just a, a continuous coil, a foot and a half in diameter. Uh, and this from one tournament. <laughs> but but uh, I digress a little bit here. The 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 Yamaha company made the forged riser, um, starting after the Alpha EX model. Which, by the way, Daryl Pace shot at the uh, 88 Olympic Games. Daryl switched to Yamaha because of a number of reasons. The main one being that they put a picture of uh, Rick McKinney <laughs> in the Hoyt catalog back in 87, I think it was. And uh, captioned it as Daryl Pace and spelled Daryl wrong on top of it. Mm. Which didn't go over very well with Daryl. <laughs> So Daryl picked up a Yamaha, and promptly there was a Yamaha poster. In fact, I used to have it in my office uh, at my real job. I had a poster of Daryl with his Yamaha. And um, long story short, you know, the Alpha EXs were very nice bows, but they were failure-prone. They would break. And so Yamaha switched to a forged riser design sometime in the early 90s, and the forged riser design was um, their main riser all the way through until their demise. Uh, in the 96 Olympic Games, the Olympic gold winner, the Korean woman that won, uh, she shot a Yamaha. Um, Sebastian Flute famously shot a Yamaha. And um, a, a number of other top shooters. Alan Razor here in the United States famously was a, a, a Yamaha shooter for many years. His coach, Shig Honda, had him shooting Yamahas. Um, as Yamaha got away from the cast Eola riser and into the forged riser and then um, started trying to get into longer risers. And that was their downfall. Um, they did a 26-inch forged riser, shipped them, and got every single one of them back. And the reason they got them back was every single one was twisted badly. And and basically, that put them out of business. Because they remember, they were in a corner of the music factory and by this time, the CEO had retired. The wife had passed away. There was no uh, incentive to stay in the in the uh, in the business. Right. No one, no one high up was. There was no it. there was no real lover of archery high up in the company. So if it wasn't making the money they needed it to, they were going to. Well, it was it. losing a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and it's a publicly owned company. So bye bye. I'm sorry, but shareholder owned companies don't like negative numbers on the right. on the bottom line, and so that was the end. Of Yamaha. Now, some people say, "Well, yeah, Win and Win bought the equipment." And it's, no, that they bought some presses and they bought some other stuff. But you can't look at the at the Sebastian Flute line from Win and Win and say those are Yamahas because they're no, they're not. So, um, long story short, I will say this: when I worked for Hoyt, I I would take a Yamaha riser, put it on the table, and say. This is what we need to shoot for in terms of fit and finish, in terms of paint quality, in terms of you know aesthetic attention to aesthetics because mm-hmm. it it was just good, you know. And so I use that as our as our you know this is this is what we need to go for, guys. We need to do better at paint. We need to do better at finishing. And then Hoyt really raised their bar as a result of being pushed by companies like Yamaha. So. So, uh, all respect to uh, to those folks at Yamaha that uh, that built those bows over those years because it was uh, 
it was a great competitor for Hoyt and for other companies, and it, and it pushed the bar higher for quality. It's interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, next one Chris Wright has was uh, he's interested to hear about the differences between competitive archery in Japan and the U.S. and other regions. Uh, for example, the U.S. Nationals is open to all competitors, whereas Japan is a qualification system to shoot in their nationals. Yep. Uh, is the U.S. the exception in this case, or is it Japan? Yep, U.S. is the exception. Yeah, I've never... So here's the deal. In the, US, in the U.S., nationals are open. Right. It's hardly the case in most other countries. You, you technically can't win if you're coming from Canada. No, 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 but I'm talking about open to any U.S. citizen. Yeah. In Japan, you can't yeah. just sign up for nationals. You yeah. got to be in the hot, top 128, I think it is, and and they only have six or twelve that they'll qualify for the compound nationals. <laughs> There's no time for that. Well, they have no love for compound. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, the All Japan Archery Federation, some of which you know is run by my some of my dear friends over there. They hate compound. I'm sorry, but they do. They just don't like compound. They they don't treat they treat compound like the redheaded stepchild. It's just not it's not fair to the few compound shooters in Japan, mm-hmm. but it is what it is. It's it's an old school system. Uh, they still follow strict amateurism over there. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know we don't pay Takahara for a kawa, and we can't refer in our catalog or printed matter to his Olympic achievements. You know the fact that he's the Olympic silver medalist. You will not find that referred to in the catalog. Because it's not allowed. Hmm. So the and if it is, what happens to him? He would get sanctioned for two years. Wow. Yeah, he would be suspended. That's interesting. That's why we're careful not to violate those rules. Yeah. So, um, and that happened to a shooter, not from us, but you know, happened to a shooter in Japan, a top shooter, famous one, who was sanctioned and and was suspended for two years because he appeared in a company's catalog hmm. without without even knowing it. Yeah, they, the company that printed the catalog <laughs> didn't tell him. They put his picture in there, and it's it's Takeyoshi Matsushita. Matsushita was suspended for two years back in the late nineties because a a company had put his picture in their catalog, unbeknownst to him. unbeknownst to him, and he got suspended for two years. So they don't mess around. Um, you know, uh, we, we're a sponsor of the Japanese Federation. Um, we, we supply them with the uh, trophies that they supply at their national championships. And um, we also print safety posters and how to shoot archery posters that go to all the archery ranges and high schools in Japan. So, um, you know, we have a good working relationship with them, but they are old school when it comes to certain things. Yes. The other thing is that um, the nice thing about having an open nationals is that your average shooter can shoot on a target with a, a Steve Anderson or a Jay Bars, or a Rick McKinney, or a Daryl Pace, or a Colin Klimchak, or a Brady Ellison, or Jake Kaminsky, or any of these guys. Uh, yeah. You may find yourself on that target, and quite likely will. And there's more funding yeah. because of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, ideally, there, there's more money coming in. Here's the reality. Whether it gets used for funding or Here not. Here is the reality, my friend. The money that comes from the membership of the NAA is nothing compared to the money that comes from the Olympic archers' achievements, the money that comes to the NAA, excuse me, the USA Archery Organization, is a fraction from the from the membership. And in fact, membership does not carry its own weight. It costs USA Archery more to have open nationals than the money that they get from it. 
That's so, uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's a I'd little like sober numbers. I you can you can look them up. They're on their website. Hmm. The membership numbers do not cover the cost of the membership. The membership, in fact, is including the compound shooters, some degree benefiting from the Olympic money that comes in from the recurve shooters. Mm, I, from what I understand. I will show you. Okay. Yeah. It's the truth. My, my understanding is that our funding comes from the ATA. No. A lot of it comes from the Easton Foundation. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, most of it, in fact, comes from the Easton Foundation. And a big chunk of it comes from the USOC through the money that's allocated to the USOC from the IOC from the NBC broadcasting <laughs> contract for the Olympic Games. And if archery does well, if if USA archery does well, they get more money. Right. In yeah. the Olympics. And that's how it is for and any And that's Olympics the bottom sport. line. So, you know, I, I see pitchforks and, and torches being lit every time they talk about well, the elite athletes are getting all the benefits, but us, the members, we're paying for BS. No, you're not. You're not no, you're covering not. You're, your bill. You are absolutely getting carried by the elite athletes. Full stop. End of story. Have a nice day. Well, all that's right. good, I suppose. Now, in Japan, you know, uh, it's uh, the JOC, the Japan Olympic Committee, that supplies funding to the AJAF, the All Japan Archery Federation, Zen Nihon Archery, whatever. And um, as a result, that organization does not depend on uh, an external foundation, things of that nature. Although, we are also supporting the Japanese Federation's new archery center in Tokyo um, with technical support. So, you know, we're, we're supplying them with uh, know-how, you know, to get their next generation of shooters up and running and, mm. and competitive. So, um, any more on that one? Uh, yes. He, he also asked, how about the differences in coaching style? Has George found that working with Japanese archers tends to be much different than working with archers in the U.S. or we could say the Swiss team? Well, you could say the Swiss team because I am working with the Swiss team. Uh, okay, so I've worked with a lot of Japanese archers, mostly high school and university level. And, you know, I, I do occasionally work with members of the national team. Um, I will say this, and Chris, if you're in Japan, you've noticed this. Japanese archers just basically work hard at everything they do. They, they run to the target to retrieve their arrows. They run back to the line. Uh, nobody wants to be last coming back. They will... They will absolutely work at what you ask them to work at. And generally, you don't get questioned a whole lot. Whereas here in America, if you have a student and that student is of a certain type, they'll, you know, you'll tell them to do such and such. They'll get an archery talk to get it validated, which just annoys the crap out of me <laughs> that some people do that. Nobody that I teach, but, uh, but I've seen it. Interesting. Story. So yeah, Japanese shooters have a, a very strong work ethic and um, generally tend, just like the other stuff that you'll see in Japanese society, generally tend to be deferential toward elders and teachers and whatnot, and and very respectful to each other, which is pretty cool. Now, just a, a kind of a question of my own: Do you see? I mean, the styles are the styles considerably different. Obviously, our style is based around Coach Lee's teachings. And, yeah, the and Japanese like style that. is much uh, simpler. And more Korean. Yeah. Uh, you know, Coach Lee, I know, is Korean, but, you know, the. And by the way, he's an American citizen now. Did you know that? No. Yeah, yeah. He's no. been naturalized, which is pretty cool. Yeah, they tend to speed those things up for U.S. No, I OC think he, coaches, he went I through heard. the process. He went through the process. Uh, I, ha I, was, I was told by a member of USA Archery, if someone were to be a potential Olympian, 
that they have contacts. That's true. In D.C. And they that, can speed that, that part's up. true, like for Katuna, for example, back in the day. Yeah. But, uh, you know, here's the deal. The, the bottom line is this. We have our national training system which is constantly evolving, constantly. You can't look at it one year and say this is what it'll be in another year. It's going to change because it's an evolving thing. Coach Lee is always trying new things. Um, in Japan, generally speaking, um, it's, it's, it's Korean form. And yeah. there's quite a few Korean coaches at the university level now in Japan, which is one of the reasons why you're seeing um, more high performance from Japan. Right, mm-hmm. and and I think that uh, that that form that you see that is 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 nice and basic and simple, and is is what I would consider to be my preferred form, because the U.S. system has gotten to a point where I don't understand it anymore completely. I'm not sure. I'm not sure too many coaches completely understand it. Coach Lee, in, in fact, is constantly tweaking it and and experimenting with ways to make it better. And so, you know, unless you're an RA, maybe you don't have the very latest version of whatever is going on down there. But even even the RAs don't all shoot the same. Right. So I don't know if that answers your question, Chris, but uh, I think that I would say that the Japanese archers in general have a simpler, cleaner, arguably, uh, form, which is related to how the Koreans shoot. If you watch Kaori Kawanaka, it's not a whole lot different than watching Kibo Bay. Yeah. I, I remember... Uh you know, not not being a recurve shooter and just taking you know some mental notes watching recurve shooters at uh, the indoor World Cups. There's the Korean team that comes over, and I believe their coach uh, was a a women's Olympic gold medalist. That's right. I can't remember her name from Barcelona. Yeah, Miss Lee. And, yeah, and and her her team. She has about five or six yes. archers that that she trains, and they all shoot literally identical. And yeah, it's, it's a very with the golf gloves. It's a yeah. It's a fast shot. There's really no. That's the LH team. Yeah. Yep. And and I and then you look at some of the uh, American women and they're they're holding a long time and you think okay is it a is it a difference of strength you know are these are these Korean framed archers not able to to hold as long No and sir. These Korean framed archers yeah. are shooting forty two pounds. Yeah. So I, I've always thought if it were me behind the bow, I'd want to work through that shot pretty darn quick. Yes. And if you ever watched, if you ever watched Kim Soon Young, uh, you know the female archer of the century, the equivalent of Daryl Pace, um, <clears throat> you know winner of the '88 Olympic Games, silver medalist at Barcelona, bronze medalist at Sydney after having two kids, just you know just an amazing shooter. Um, and maybe I've told you the story, Steve. Back in '88, she uh, she came out to the uh, archery field where I was teaching the great skier Jean Claude Keely who's an IOC member to shoot archery during the Olympics. And I handed her a bow and she turns and she just starts shooting and she hadn't picked up a bow in years. And it was the exact same form and the exact same timing. It was spooky. It was so <laughs> spooky. With because, your bow. Well, yeah. But you know, I mean, two seconds at full draw and boom, Yeah. two seconds at full draw, boom, two seconds at full draw, boom. You could set a clock. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. And that's what we see out of, the, the Choi Misoons and Kibo Bays uh-huh. too. Yep. It's, sure you know, is. About two two to three seconds in that arrows. You got it. And it's, so, it's out the door. And it's a beautiful thing to watch, you know. But you know how many tens and thousands and millions of arrows it takes. <laughs> you know. I, I did a selfie the other day with Daryl Pace, John Williams, Jay Bars, and I, I just kind of quipped, I wonder how many arrows have been shot by the and, and, and Simon Fairweather. We were on this photo. And I just quipped, How many photos how many arrows do you think we've all shot? 
over the course of her career and almost simultaneously all said millions <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, it's probably true yeah you know it's millions of arrows if you count those people yeah i you mean know? for them it, it's not it's not you know the most difficult math to do but you figure those guys are putting out hundreds of thousands of arrows yeah a I, year you know jay you know maybe i don't know if you heard the interview with jay but jay mentioned that at times he'd shoot 900 arrows a day yeah well, you know, for four years getting ready for the Olympic Games, it's a lot of arrows. It adds up. Yeah, you figure he's doing he's doing over a hundred thousand arrows a year easily, easily. So, any more on uh, Chris's uh, email there? Uh, that was it from Chris. Well, thank you for your for your kind questions, Chris. And I hope I run into you next time I'm in Japan, which is actually going to be all too soon. <laughs> all right, over here we've got uh, one more question. We're going to tackle from David. Oh, I, I think was, that. Do we already have that one? Oh, yeah, you're right. I just copied it. Sorry. Okay, we've already got David's question in. Okay, this one's from Chris from Chicago. Something I'd love to see on the East and ACE shafts that I've graduated to over the years, alignment lines for fletchings. I'm not a fan of getting covered in silver pen marker each time I set up some new arrows. Maybe I'm just messy, exclamation point. Keep up the good work, Chris from Chicago. Okay, so, uh, you know, this has come up every once in a while. Why don't we print spin wing lines? on the back of, of high-end arrows like ACGs and X10s and ACEs. And there's one simple reason. And that simple reason is not everybody wants the same offset. And an awful lot of shooters like to use wraps. Mm-hmm. So those are the main reasons for that. And I, you know, I think that um, if you get a biter tri-liner and just a, a mechanical pencil, yeah, that's more than enough to do the job. Yeah. And pretty quick, but I, you know, I use uh, I use Ron Vanderhoff makes me these uh, arrow wraps, the socks S O C X from Netherlands, right? You can get those with your name on them. You can get them with an arrow number on them. You can get them with lines on them if you choose to. Yep. I, I use the ones that don't have lines on them because I get more precision from putting lines on my arrows with the triliner, yeah. the biter triliner. And that's that's and, like a, a thirty second job, right? And here's the other thing, though. Uh, get yourself a Pentel white paint pen, not a white, not a silver Sharpie or a silver marker, because those those the specific half millimeter Pentel brand paint pens put down a perfect white line, do not make a mess, and work great if you want to put your name on the arrow as well. So there's a, there's a tip, pro tip for you. Another, another pro tip which uh, I just picked up this year. I had no idea. The white boxes on your X10 arrows are great place for your initials. That's what they're for. Yeah, I, I didn't, you didn't know. know that. I, that was just decoration, you know. <sighs> so, you know what? We we take a lot of stuff for granted, right? We take stuff for granted, like people know that those three white boxes are for the initial blocks, and that they're toward the knock end. No, they don't. They don't know that. They don't know that. They don't know that because. They haven't read the tech bulletins or because we haven't done a good job of mentioning any of that stuff Here, lately. Here's my issue. I'm a compounder shooting regular X-10s. That's why. Because on the Pro Tour, no white boxes. I don't think. No, there's no white boxes on a Pro Tour. So there you go. There's the reason. There's my problem. I have an excuse. You have an excuse. <laughs> All right. Well, there's probably a few things like that, though. That we just, you know, because we deal with it every day. We don't think about it. So we, you know, we get questions like, well, you know, what's the difference between an ACG and an ACE and an X10? Yeah. And and we go, uh, but 
Yeah, you can't that's assume. Just, that's just because we we're so immersed we in this in stuff, this, yeah. you know, and you got to try to look at it once in a while at least, particularly when you're trying to write instructions, right? Yep. If you're trying to write instructions, you can't assume that somebody understands all the stuff about, you know, uh, rotate the part several times after you've made the cut on the cutoff saw mm-hmm. to, to square it up, you know? You can't assume people know that. No. You know, where do you learn that stuff? Well, we're going to try to do some better job of, of that for you. We're going to we're going to do more videos, more how-to, basic stuff like how to install your arrow points. Yeah. Because, you know, I, we 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 hear you. You know, we we get it that a lot of you don't know some of these things and we want to do a better job for you. So, keep the questions coming to maybe we can do a video on your uh Triliner. We could do that. Yeah. It wouldn't be hard to do. Send your questions. Easton, excuse me, podcast at eastontp.com. Podcast at eastontp.com is where we've been getting quite a few questions. This lately. makes a great video opportunity. This, the good stuff we can save and earmark to do as, as yeah. videos. Yeah, and you know what? If you, as a listener, have an opinion on something you want to see video-wise or explained better, hey, tell us, you know. Because, you know, we don't know it all as far as what you want to know, but we sure can try to come up with a good answer for you if you have a good question. Yeah. So. If we don't know it, we'll just make up something. We'll make know? it up as we go. <laughs> yeah. If we say it with enough conviction, they'll believe us. Oh, that's uh, that's a that's a scary <laughs> road to go down. We want to run for politics. Is that next? Start running for office. Is that is that next? Yeah. All right. So um, that that uh, that is our questions for this week. Where are you headed? What do you got going on? Um, I have nothing. I have nothing happening. Oh, wait. No, I've got to go next weekend to Mexico. I mean, I get to go uh, to Linda's cousin's wedding. That sounds like a blast. While I'm there, I'm going to shoot an indoor tournament. So that's cool. I huh. should probably get a bow ready, but I'll probably do that Saturday or Sunday. Okay. So, you know, the next big tournament is going to be Marrakech. Yep. And um, we're like a month away from that. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly these things are coming around. So Marrakech will be the first leg of the Indoor World Cup. At the same time, we've got um, this upcoming week. Uh, this weekend, I'm flying to Bangkok for the Asian Championship. And then um, I'll be spending a few days in Japan after that. Um, the next big event on the calendar after Marrakech is the Bangkok Indoor. The Bangkok Indoor is the second leg of the Archery World Cup. The third leg of the Archery Indoor World Cup will be Olivier's big tournament in Nîmes. And that'll be, that'll be a fun one. Absolutely. Always, that, that might be my favorite event of the year. It is my favorite event of the year because I get to meet a lot of friends from all around Europe. Yeah. Uh, I get to hang with the, how do I put this? The, the average shooters that are able to make that tournament from clubs in France. I learn more from hanging with those people for a day than mm-hmm. I learned from hanging with top shooters for a month. Yeah, you, you go to the Outdoor World Cups, it's the same people, and it, it's almost like waking up and, and going to high school, you know? Yeah. The same yeah. four or 500 people. and You know what's even worse than that? 3D. 3D uh, has the same 7,000 total participants. Did you know that? I, that's the number I've heard. Yeah, there's about 7,000 participants. Total in, participants in 3D, 3D in the country is 7,000 people. Now, there's probably quite a few more you know, bow hunters who pick up a bow and go shoot at a 3D target once yeah. in a while. But I'm talking about people on the competitive circuit per se. That's yeah, a tiny a, population compared to Recurve Worldwide. But they sure do get a lot of you know attention yeah, from I mean, bow we, companies. We, 
yeah we all love 3d it's a yeah we feel like it's a a great uh segue from from bow hunting into a form of target archery well you're a big fan and i've shot it a little bit and i intend to continue shooting it and uh but yeah it, it is one of those things where i went to uh i went to two asa events this year and they happened to be in the same the exact same place so it, it felt like deja vu, you know, because it is the same people, the so, same vendors. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, when we had the team from Japan here back uh, earlier in the year for training at the archery center, there was a 3D target, and the 3D target just happened to be lying around. I don't know what it was there for. I think they were they were staging it to get it to, out to the outdoor range because, you know, they also have a full 3D outdoor range out there. All the girls on the team wanted to shoot at the deer something new and they're nailing this thing from 70 meters i mean they're hitting you know once you showed them where the 11 ring was or whatever it is dude <laughs> they were wearing that thing out they, they can hold on that deer huh? yeah but that, what shocked me a little bit a little bit was how much they really wanted to shoot the thing i was like <laughs> really because you know i've been to i've been to nara nara is uh one of the ancient ancient temple sites in japan and there are deer running around all over the place and they're tame deer you buy, you buy these rice crackers that are deer crackers, right? And the deer will eat them right out of your hand. They're walking around. They're all over the place. And no one's shooting them. Nobody's shooting them. <laughs> so I was a little bit taken aback <laughs> at how much these Japanese Olympic team women wanted to shoot the rubber deer. <laughs> the deer. <laughs> anyway, after, after uh, Neem, we've got Vegas. And I mean, like right after. So Vegas is going to be big this year. It's the 50th anniversary of Vegas. Bruce is excited. He says it's going to be a record turnout. I ran into Bruce down in San Diego at the opening of the New Easton Center, and uh, and he's super excited because you know yeah. they just got so much going on for 50th anniversary. There will be a uh, we're going to have a little promotional deal, by the way. Yeah, for anybody shooting an Easton aluminum arrow, we're going to tie that in with the 50th anniversary of the X7 arrow. As some of you may know, we've done a special anniversary version of that thing. So we're we're going to have. Uh, I think the plan right now is we're going to pick up somebody's Vegas travel in room next year. We'll we'll draw for that and we'll we'll get them set up. So interesting. That's the plan. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Um, well, since you're going to be doing it, I'm glad that you now know. <laughs> I love being in the loop. Yeah. yeah well, you are now. <laughs> anyway, you know what's scary is uh, right after that we've got the Ankara World Indoor, and boom, right into Shanghai pretty much from there so we've got a lot going on uh and you know i i am looking forward to the olympic year i think it's going to be a spectacular year rio by all accounts is going to have a great event and we're looking forward to uh we're looking forward to the whole cycle getting ready to start up again yeah what are we uh what are we going to do as far as podcasts go are we going to still try to hammer these out i mean this is a it's a busy time of year. We do our best, man. Yeah. You know, when we get to these things, we'll just drag the gear along. And yeah. even if it's just a few minutes, we'll try to sit down and spend some time with a top shooter at these things. And, you know, don't forget, we've got some stuff in the can, too. So we'll be we'll be uh, populating the podcast with some of those things as we go. So it'll be okay. Yeah. Don't worry. Good times. All right. Any closing thoughts? Um, no. I have, I have nothing. You have nothing. Here's something we were talking about the other day. You know when... Uh, this is completely non-archery related other than that it was being talked about within the Eastern office. Is this the after show now? We're into the after show. Yeah, we're at the after okay. show. This is probably the most exciting part. Um, we were we were talking about how at the end of a phone call, you kind of 
there's always a way where you kind of signal the end of the call, right? You say like, well, all right. And that's kind of like your signal, like, okay, let's, let's get off this call. We're, we're done. I have nothing more to say. Um, and, and Gary was, was talking about how there was a guy who just didn't, he couldn't pick up on that. So finally Gary just straight up said, okay, this is the end of the call. So I think I'm going to start doing that now. Anytime I talk to someone on the phone and, and we get to the well, all right stage, I'm going to call it the end of call stage. And I'm going to go, okay, George, end of call. End of show. End of show. Adios. Bye-bye. <laughs>